What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Wildlife Cake and Cocktails. Uh, and you can probably hear some squawking and some wind and, and some interesting noises. We're out in the field. We've got another field show coming at you. Um, very interesting uh, uh, show for you guys today. We're uh, out at uh, Berenbal Wetlands Wildlife Sanctuary. <laughs> Berenbal Wildlife Sanctuary. Berenbal yeah. Wildlife Sanctuary. Um, and we're here for the Brisbane Python Project Blitz with Chantelle Derez. Uh, we previously spoke to her regarding uh, reptile rehabilitation, wildlife rehabilitation in general at the uh, Wildlife Queensland pre uh, presentations, I believe. Yep. Uh, she is uh, currently a PhD student at the UQ Centre for Biodiversity and Conservation Science uh, following her master's at UQ in snake taxonomy. Uh, she's got experience in a variety of roles as a venomous snake collections keeper on sea shepherd vessels and uh, much, much more. Uh, she's also the UQ Herpetological Society's treasurer, a keen herpetologist, wildlife carer, and a member of Reptile Rehab Queensland and of Save the Snakes. Yes, more recently, the uh, <laughs> Australian advisor for Save the Snakes. Astra the Australian advisor for Save the Snakes. Um, you'll very shortly be able to find uh, a lot of these details up at the Brisbane Python Project website and that Facebook page will also be going up soon. You can also uh, check her out on uh, on Facebook and Twitter at Chantelle Derez. And uh, don't forget to check out at UQ Herp as well and uh, Reptile Rehab Queensland all on uh, Twitter and Facebook as well. Uh, Chili. Uh, yes. How are you doing? Good. How are you going? <laughs> I'm, I'm great. I'm just uh, enjoying watching this little uh, crew of uh, very, very keen python hunters set up their camp for tonight. Oh, it's exciting, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So this is um, our first, well, your first blitz for your uh, PhD project. That's correct, yeah. And uh, I, so last time we were talking a little bit about, I guess, some of the issues with uh, wildlife rehabilitation and conservation, right? Yep. So uh, it can be quite costly. There's over 200 registered wildlife carer organizations in Australia, over 20,000 uh, individual carers, and um, over 4 million, just uh, if we're just talking mammals, over 4 million mammals killed on Australian roads per year, right? Yep, that's correct. So we were talking about some of the, uh, I guess, costs and some of the, uh, uh, I guess, issues with rehabilitation, but also snake translocation to some extent as well. Yes. Yeah. So is that, that that's kind of uh, become uh, quite a big focus on, on your PhD is the issue of uh, snake translocation? Yep. So the main part of my PhD is actually looking at do translocations work to mitigate conflict of human wildlife conflict? So what happens is some people may find a snake in their yard uh, call a snake catcher, snake catcher comes and removes the snake, but the question then becomes, what happens to that snake? It's classed as a successful translocation for the person because the snake is no longer there, but that's where the question now becomes, you know, how does that impact on the snake that's being translocated and other snakes in the area that the snake is getting translocated to? Right, right. So there's obviously been a few studies done on this, and we, and we spoke a little bit about this before, but... Uh, just as a quick rundown, so uh, studies that have uh, been done with, with snakes and translocation, for example, in the US with timber rattlesnakes showed that they have a 55% increase in mortality rates and much more erratic daily movements. Uh, they also found elevated corticosterone uh, sterone and testosterone in uh, translocated Pacific rattlesnakes, showing that it can be stressful. Uh, Western diamondback rattlesnakes had a three times higher mortality um, and then residents and uh, resident hognose snakes, eastern hognose snakes, also survived three times longer. Um, 
in Australia as well, there's been the, you know, that recent study with Do Guides done uh, at Curtin University. Yep, with Ashley Wolf. With yep. Ashley Wolf, yeah, that's right. That uh, showed that, you know, their snakes that were translocated over four kilometers <laughs> uh, or, or, or over three kilometers, yeah, they had a 100% mortality rate. Yep. Right? Not a huge sample I, size as no, well. No, it wasn't that. a huge sample size, but I do have a feeling it was an even smaller distance. Yeah, right. Well, I, I know that the ones that were trans, uh, translocated less than 200 meters had a 50% mortality rate. Yeah. So still maybe not ideal. It, it, yeah, definitely. I think it also depends on the species. And right. that's one of the, what I think is so cool or so interesting about this project is that pythons haven't been done really before. There was one study that was done out in rural South Australia, but they only managed to find three pythons. One was classed as the resident and two translocated. But because of the area that they were in such rural areas and long sandstones, um, scapes along the water, they had a lot of trouble actually finding the snakes to right. to try and radio track and <laughs> that. And unfortunately, they did have transmitter failure within the first three months of one of their snakes. So yeah. that brings us down to just two snakes then. Not a huge um, sample size again. It's not, but once again, the translocated male did show more than a tenfold increase of home range or areas that he was found as a compared to the resident, which is very similar in what we're finding in a lot of translocation studies. Right. E even here in Australia, right? Like the um, tiger snakes in Victoria, I believe were shown to have home ranges six, six times, times the size correct. of the resident snakes. Yeah. And their home range, um, well, that bigger home range actually took them outside the park that they'd been translocated to. Right. So that means that they were then crossing roads, going into people's yards. And coming back into those suburban environments that they'd been moved out of anyway. Exactly. And so that's partly what got me thinking for my project. So even though we're looking at what happens to the translocated pythons, for me, one of the key questions that I'm posing is when we're moving these urban snakes, we're taking them out of people's backyards. And I do know a lot of snake catchers are trying to find nice green habitat, you know, that sometimes if it's got water, but it's got trees, it's all this nice area that we think in our minds, that's where they want to go. Right. But they've come out with, well, that area is quite different to the housing areas they've come out from. Right. So when they do get put into these green or bush areas, are they just... Um, coming straight out of that and going straight back into suburbia. Yeah, it, it, it is a fantastically interesting question. Like, you know, we build most of our human uh, environments, our, our housing in, in areas that are usually kind of open woodland. Yep. Right. And some of the mountainy rainforesty stuff that we have next to us might not be suitable for some of those open woodland animals that we have uh, still living in and around those urban areas. Yeah, exactly. And so for me, part of the um, study is... There's now current trend coming out about urban adapted animals. And that's what I want to know. Are pythons that we get here in Brisbane, because we get quite a large number of pythons, are they actually adapting to urban areas? And so we're actually doing detriment, putting them back into bushland. Right, 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 right. That's, uh, that's interesting. Um, obviously, you know, we want all of our translocations to be useful and successful. So yep. finding out <laughs> whether or not these uh, animals will even survive that. Oh, looks like we may have a bit of storm Ooh, action coming Hopefully. Through. Brings yeah. out the frogs, which will bring out, hopefully, some snakes. Yeah, a little bit of rain. <laughs> not necessarily pythons, but, you know. <laughs> so we're, we're looking for a little bit of everything else tonight as well. <laughs> well, we've got to throw something into to keep everyone um, interested <laughs> and want to come back again yeah, if they right. get sick of carpet pythons. Yeah, that's for sure. Oh, look, uh, let's uh, let's bring it back to pythons for a minute. Um, I know that they can have a fairly sizable home range from a lot of the movement studies that they've done. I know that there's not a lot of work that has been done on them, um, but I, 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 I think somewhere around 20 hectares 
would would probably be a decent average. Again, there was a huge amount of variation in that study. Well, that was the problem that that um, 20 hectares actually came, um, was changed because of that one male that had the huge area home range and he was actually a translocated male. Right. So majority of the others was only about 11. Okay. Okay. Uh, resident snakes, uh, resident pythons. Resident but pythons once again, that, that was actually a semi-rural study, so it wasn't in an urban area. Yeah, okay. And to, for an animal to be classed as urban adapted, it has a smaller home range, um, can also have increased aggression, but also higher numbers. Right, higher density. Well, yeah, so higher density. Yeah. So, right. And that's what I suspect we kind of have here in Brisbane, that we've got higher numbers that have a smaller home range. Um, just because, you know, we seem to encounter pythons quite regularly, uh, through snake catchers and, or people calling. Yeah. Right. And th they are pretty much ubiquitous. So, mm -hmm. you know, it, it would be good to know <laughs> that, you know, translocations are, you know, whether or not they're successful or yeah. detrimental. Uh, like, I mean, there's been so many other animals where it hasn't really been shown to be super useful, right? Like brushed out possums yep. has been an issue. Um, I, I've uh, got some notes here as well on a white tailed deer in Illinois mm -hmm. with uh, massive mortality rates. Um, and uh, obviously there's been plenty of uh, failures to limit human wildlife conflicts with things like saltwater crocodiles, uh, gray wolves and brown bears mm -hmm. as well. But I would just like to throw out when you're talking about the white-tailed deers, one of the problems that they found with one study was that they decided to move the deers into what they classed as better habitat. But because it was better habitat, there was actually more predators and that's where hunting actually occurred. <laughs> so unfortunately, a lot of the animals uh, didn't actually survive due to those reasons. Right. So we come back to that question of what is suitable habitat <laughs> yeah, for these animals. Exactly. <laughs> okay. So um, can you tell us a little bit about where we are at, uh, at the moment? Okay, so we're on um, a private wildlife sanctuary. Uh, a lot of koalas and other animals occur here. So it's roughly 200 um, acres. Nope, sorry, 200 hectares, <laughs> 90 acres. Uh, we do have a little bit of area here which is classed as urban or, sorry, human dwellings. And then it's all surrounded by bushland. So for me, that's the great thing that we can actually try and work out where do these pythons prefer? Do they prefer hanging out in the bushland areas or are they spending a lot of time in urban areas? And potentially, you know, what happens? Does the urban ones go visit the bushland or do, yeah, they just hang out? Yeah, absolutely. And look, um, obviously this uh, lovely grounds here with all the campsites and a little bit of housing and, and you know, bathrooms and stuff like that. Um, tucked right in against, a, you know, this really, really natural remnant area. Yep. Um, kind of perfect habitat. Uh, well, perfect study site. You yes. can kind of uh, capture a bit, a bit of both of those environments. Is that uh, kind of the idea? Uh, that's partly, well, that's definitely one of the main parts of the idea. The other parts um, is that there was a couple of features that I needed to find for my study site. So one of them was an area where snake catchers aren't actually going to be putting snakes on the properties or right. onto the areas because... You know, when you're trying to look at residents, how do you guarantee it's a resident? Um, the other thing was definitely my safety. You know, the idea of going out at late at night, trying to find snakes or, you know, following radio transmitters, never know what dodgy people I might run into <laughs> during the evenings. Um, and the other thing was an area that we knew that snakes occurred on. So there were some areas where I was originally looking for my study site and I know snake catchers put snakes on there but 
whether or not they actually stay there is another big question. And that's where the idea is, hey, urban habitat versus bushland, that sort of came from that yeah, as well. Yeah, cool. So what's the, uh, what's the schedule for tonight then? Um, after, after our quick little chat, we'll probably uh, go up and have a bit of a feed. And, uh, and then what? Then so, what? yeah, we're definitely going to – I'm going to fuel you all up so you guys <laughs> are ready to go and can keep going through the night. We're then going to head out into the bushland area. So we're going to have at least two t- groups going out, going into two different areas. Um, try and find pythons with that. We'll hopefully be going to about 11 o'clock at night, 10 and 30, 11. Then we come back and actually hang out or sorry, look around the urban areas and just see if we can find any pythons around here. Hit the, <laughs> go to bed, hit the sack, um, round t- between 12 and one, get up at four o'clock <laughs> and uh, we look around the urban areas again. And then we go to bushland and hopefully have some lunch, uh, sorry, some breakfast at seven o'clock in the morning. Awesome. Awesome. So, um, how many people have shown up here? We've probably got, uh, at least I close think, to a dozen. Hey. Yeah. Yeah. So I was going to say, I think we've got 12 here. Hey, excellent. Excellent. And, uh, this is, uh, hopefully I guess going to be the first of many blitzes, but, uh, probably depending on what we find tonight. Is that kind of the case? Yeah. So the aim of the whole project is to get at least 10 resident snakes and put transmitters in them. Uh, I've already got one snake on the property that has a transmitter. I have found another three, but unfortunately they're all too small for the transmitters that I had. Right. Um, So we want big pythons. Well, we do want big pythons. I have put an order in for some smaller transmitters, but I'm also still trying to come up with the funds to pay for those (laughs) transmitters and waiting for them to arrive. But My initial thought was we'd be able to put them in snakes over a kilo. We've managed to find three female pythons and they're all around the 800, 850 (sighs) gram range. So just a bit small. But I did have one python recently where 1.8 kilos, but it was long and skinny. So the transmitters I had I felt was too big to go into its body cavity. So hence why I'm very excited for the small transmitters when they're going to come. Yeah, definitely make things a lot easier. Which is meant to be next week. (laughs) So so I guess that means if things go well and we do find plenty, then we'll be back here with some smaller trackers at some point. Definitely. That would be hopefully the plan. (laughs) Awesome. Awesome. Well, very much looking forward to it. Very much looking forward to finding out the uh, results and uh, seeing how, I guess, uh, common carpet pythons are in that patch of scrub behind us versus the uh, slightly <laughs> developed patch up here in front of us. Um, yeah, very, very interesting. Uh, looking forward to it. Um, I guess we'll be uh, chatting a little bit later once we're uh, back out on the trail. Sounds good. All right. No worries. All right, guys. Talk soon. All right. Here we are out in the field. Uh, Chili has just dropped us off and we are going to be looking for pythons. We have Sandy Dickinson, Scott Iper, and Pat Lazaro here with us. Uh, Scott, how are we looking, mate? Not too bad, mate. It's nice and warm. The wind's dropped off now, so hopefully we'll see some critters very soon. Uh, what do you reckon the chance we'll get some uh, some rain tonight? Not good enough. Not good enough. <laughs> yeah, it, it, it is looking a little bit dry, but um, yeah, I guess uh, pretty happy to be out here looking for some pythons for this uh, translocation project, which you obviously, as uh, you know, as educator, snake person, fairly interested in as well. Hundred percent. This is a great study that's going to actually give some science behind um what happens to snakes when they are relocated as opposed to us hoping that they are being successfully relocated actually seeing what happens and how far they move yeah totally and um as far as urbanization there's not uh, we assume that there's probably not too many snakes more urbanized here on the southeast uh, southeast queensland area as carpet pythons and um we'll get to be seeing that as well hopefully seeing how they go in these more natural environments 
compared to the uh, urban environments, which should be, should be pretty interesting as well. Yeah, I think it's important to get this this study underway because this study is actually going to give some baseline in regards to um, what the urban type carpet pythons in the southeast Queensland area are doing naturally, and then being able to look at this and then see as see if there's any changes in regards to the urban pythons themselves, um, and see how much. Uh, population change there is between these wild animals and where the property borders the urban environment, whether those animals are actually moving into people's houses or not. Yeah, very interesting. Um, and Pat, yourself, uh, you're also a snake catcher up on the uh, north side of Brisbane, is that correct? Yeah, that's, uh, that's right. Those are A1 snake relocations. Uh, but um, yeah, I've always been concerned about uh, the distance that we uh, relocate to snakes. Uh, are we actually helping the snakes out or are we uh, either to their detriment? Uh, I always try to uh, relocate them as close as I can to where they came from, um, simply because the data's not there. Uh, there's a lot of opinions, but um, I'm, I'm really excited about this study. Uh, because it's going to impact, uh, hopefully, legislation. Yeah, absolutely. And, and and we all, you know, have seen those studies that there is a fairly kind of constant correlation with a lot of translocations of the further you move things, the worse it is for them. But we don't really know, right? No, that's right. Uh, especially if uh, when you consider a, a python that's uh, probably born and raised um, in suburbia, will it know how to survive out in the bush where we think it belongs? Yeah, absolutely. We're, we're taking these uh, city kid pythons and dropping them off in the jungles in the in the wild scrub and hoping that they're going to be fine. Yeah, well, it's about uh, finding water sources, uh, basking spots where they're not going to get harassed by birds, you know, predation by other different type of animals and you know, hidey holes. And yeah, it's um, yeah, really excited about this. All right. Yeah. Well, I think everybody's pretty excited. We better get out there and see what we can find instead of uh, sitting here and talking all night and using up Chili's valuable uh, search time that she's got us out here for. So um, let's hit the track, and uh, if we find something, we'll um, we'll turn the mics back on. And any time that we've wasted doing this bloody podcast is all on Yanni. It's got nothing to do with me. All right, Chili, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, once again, thrown under the bus at the very last minute. Um, that's how we do, ladies and gentlemen. Um, all right, we'll uh, we'll turn the recorders on once we uh, find something. All right, cheers, guys. All right, here we are, guys. Um, and we have, oh, that is a nice photo. Look at that. <laughs> <laughs> well done, Scott. So, um, I've, uh, I've found myself a carpet python, you know, we, uh, we find these on the regular doing this thing, but, uh, I'm pretty happy with this one, Scott. Yeah, mate. Yeah. I believe you are now in the lead. <laughs> well, yeah, I think, uh, Pat's out there. He's, uh, he's got himself a keelback and a smaller carpet python, but, uh, mine's bigger. My one will actually make the study. So, uh, yeah, suck it, Pat. Well, if it's not big enough, mate, it doesn't count. So, you know, it is what it is. I like that we're out here in the uh, in the dark in the forest talking about the size of snakes. Um, no no innuendos or untundra at all. It's got nothing to do with the colony that's nearby. Is that what you're saying? Or? <laughs> not at all. Not at all. But um, so, look, uh, this will probably be our first uh, study animal for the night. Um, that will probably come back and get a uh, heat sensitive pit tracker put into it to see how these guys move around um in their in their more natural environments so uh pretty exciting we've we finally uh we've been out here for a few hours it's been a pretty fruitless night up until now um <laughs> we, we sort of gave it a crack didn't we? we we went up along the creek and then we didn't see much activity so we're going right let's go back up onto the ridge we shot up onto the ridge and then we've gone right let's walk back along the creek and we've spread out in a in a a decent sort of 
pattern in the transect. So we're about 15 metres apart to sort of cover a fair bit of ground. So between the three of us that were down on this one, you happen to be the one in the middle, Yarny, that got it. So congratulations to you, mate. Um, hopefully it's it's certainly big enough for the for the study. We're just hoping that um, that it stays put. So we've taken some photos in situ so we can send those across to Chile for her work. And then hopefully the snake doesn't just sort of move off. But we've been standing here for about 10 minutes now and it hasn't really moved too much. So. Yeah, he seems pretty happy and settled. It might even be maybe even setting up a bit of an ambush here along some of these logs maybe. What do you think? Um, yeah, I'd say he's come out from underneath a whole heap of underbrush, which was a bit further away from where he is. And he just seems to be sitting there quite happily uh, alongside an area where there's probably a bit of a trail where you might get some game moving across. So it might be sitting in an ambush position and he might be trying to improve it now that we, we keep flushing him with the torch. Yeah, well, we'll try to keep a little bit of that light off him, but obviously we do got to keep an eye on him until uh, Chili gets here to uh, collect this guy up and uh, bring him in for oh, well, being measured, being weighed, and then maybe even going in to get a get a quick uh, transmitter implant. But um, I figure we should probably have a bit of a chat about carpet pythons while we're here because they are, I guess, taxonomically interesting as well, which is largely where, where you focus on a lot of your efforts. Um, it is interesting. These guys here are what we used to call the coastal carpet python, a subspecies of the overall carpet python uh species and that in uh recent years has uh been proven uh, a little bit incorrect they are pretty much all able to well those uh things that were subspecies that all got collapsed into morelia spolota the plain old carpet python um probably weren't subspecies well it depends um certainly on the the studies that have been provided of late um that are based largely on, uh, not on nuclear DNA, but on mitochondrial DNA, they show that there's a lot of gene flow between the populations. And so animals that we were previously regarding as subspecies, such as Spilota, uh, McDowell-I, and uh, Shane-I, um, they are all uh, sort of, uh, the, the populations are flowing in between each other. And so with that and then also a lack of reliable morphological differences um, makes it very difficult to actually say that this is subspecies X or subspecies Y. And, and, and th those three subspecies, right? That's the uh, Spilotas, the coastal, uh, sorry, Spilotas, the diamond, McDowell is the coastal, and Chianni is the jungle from the Atherton Tablelands, correct? Yeah, that's correct. And so if you look at it at Australia and, and and look at where carpet pythons or as a group are, are sitting, it makes sense that the animals are at the furthest south of Australia, which are dark in colour, um, i.e. diamond pythons, they're dark in colour to, to take that heat from the sun. Yeah, um, absorb solar radiation a bit more effectively being dark coloured. Yeah, of course. And so as you go further north, the populations tend to get lighter in coloration with the exception of the animals that are restricted to the rainforest. And those animals in the rainforest have got this high contrast color, which suits that dappled light environment. And, and so you've got animals that look identical to Shane Eye or what we were calling Shane Eye um, at places like Kroombat Tops and little patches of rainforest like that. So um, generally speaking, it, it, the shift now is to, to go across onto um, we regarded them as races as opposed to subspecies. Um, but there is some work happening now with nuclear DNA with someone looking potentially to do um, the 
uh, look at the whole genome of carpet pythons, which will probably give a much better understanding and a much better resolution. So while at the moment we're also, I'm suggesting that these things are, are all races, we might see further change moving forward. Um, but I, I doubt that, um, that all of the subspecies that were previously recognised will remain as being recognised as that. And there's even talk that potentially inland carpets, which are Metcalfi, should be better regarded as a full species as opposed to a subspecies. So yeah, there is going to be those things which you know you consider a subspecies that end up being collapsed back into a single species, and then there is those really really outlier subspecies like breadlie, like uh, calfei, um, and things like that, that and imbricata obviously, which have been separated out. Some of them as their own species already. Um, I, I found it interesting that you uh, and I thought it was quite a you know obviously quite a useful solution to use races to define these different kind of morphological phenotypes that are kind of geographically restricted but definitely share genes it seems to be something that um that is used more in the birding community than it is in the reptile community do, do you have any idea why um certainly bird people use it mammal people use it fish people use it um the the reason reptile people use it i don't use it i'm not really aware maybe um, just convention or history or lack of use it's probably convention, but I mean, when we when we sort of thought about using it, um, we went back and had a look at some dictionaries of herpetology and biological di dictionaries, and really, it, the the term race works really well for a lot of phenotypic um, oh, phenotypic types that we sort of call a form. Um, so you can use the term form, or you could use the term race, and and race seems to be a little bit more set as opposed to form, which is just a, a phenotypic variation of a, a particular species. So, um, you know, you could quite easily call it a bell's race in regards to lace monitors as opposed to bell's form, um, and. Uh, likewise with things like blue tongue skinks and you know you've got the the northern uh, that some people regard as a, a subspecies you've got the Kimberley form which is a an animal that is much more speckled in pattern than the animals say from around Darwin um, and so it's not something that it, it's a it's a lot looser sort of a description and it's a way that we can provide um, separation without actually changing the taxonomy all right, I think we're being uh, hollowed up on the radio, so I'll have to uh, uh, hang up here and we'll uh, we'll meet Chile and we'll uh, we'll we'll get this python processed into the Brisbane Python Project. Thanks, Scott. Thank you, Yanni. And here we are back at camp. A uh, bit of a bit of a fruitless early search, but we got some there in the end. Um, and we're we're back here with uh, some of the uh, Herp crew. Getting ready to look around some of the uh, buildings here. We've got Chile here as well. And uh, you've got a few animals to process. Yeah, it's pretty been a pretty good night. So we've got one small one, which is unfortunately too small for the study. Uh, we've just done a quick measurement and it's only roughly 350 grams, which is nowhere near the one kilo cutoff that we have. But we've also managed to get another bigger male who's coming in roughly 3.4 kilos. So definitely big enough to have a transmitter put in. And we do believe that we've also found his uh, recent shed skin near the site where he was located. Perfect. And uh, that's my one. That's the one I found, isn't it? It is. Yes. You can throw it out there. You found the biggest snake of the night. <laughs> Suck it, Scott. Yeah, that's okay, mate. You got when you went down the creek line that I told you to go down. So that's all right. <laughs> It, it was fantastic guidance, and uh, I thank you for your spiritual advice, as, as always. Um, 
but uh, we, we've got a few few more things to look for around here now that we're uh, going to be poking around these houses as well, hey? Uh, but yeah, look, uh, it's been heaps of fun. Um, uh, you know, obviously, I think uh, we all hope to you know, really start finding a lot of stuff nice and early. It's like how you go with every herping trip. And like I was saying out there, it's, it, is, it is funny because, you know, you go to pretty much any patch of scrubland around Brisbane and you can throw a rock in any random direction and almost hit a carpet python some of the time. Like, it would be pretty close. And now we have... You know, a dozen uh, professional herpetologists, <laughs> professional and uh, middling amateur and onwards and upwards, various levels of herpetologists out in the field looking as hard as they can. And we found, what, three or four snakes? Two. Oh, two pythons. Two and, uh, pythons and one killback. And, and uh, I think uh, there was a tree snake as well, a small, a small tree snake that Pat found as well. So, so Pat's got the numbers. Pat's got the keelback, uh, the tree snake, and the small python. But uh, I got the monster. <laughs> uh, the, so, the collective weight of the carpet outranked all three of the others anyway so it doesn't matter <laughs> yeah and uh and here's me not putting bets down so you know whatever another opportunity to earn gone you guys will just have to come back and try again <laughs> is 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 that like uh your way of tempting us back you know you, you stoke up a bit of rivalry and then you know get everybody back to try to outdo each other isn't that the only way? <laughs> well, it works for me. I don't know about you, Scott. Oh, look, I'm always up for a bit of rivalry, but at the end of the day, I mean, it's you can only do what you can do. And uh, if the conditions aren't the conditions aren't, it is what it is. But we can't blame our tools. We're all out there. And, and at the end of the day, a couple of carpets were found, which is pretty good considering that they are a, a fairly cryptic species, despite how common they are. Yeah, I like I I almost expect that we might do better around some of these urban environments, right? Potentially, and that's something that I really do think is going to come out in the study that there's some here that just prefer urban areas and don't even go across to the bushland. Do Do you mean in terms of like just individuals or um, overall like local populations? Um, I think it's going to be both. So for this study site, it's going to be individuals because we have found some over in the bushlands, but I do believe for myself that um, urban carpet pythons prefer urban areas than being put out in bushland. Yeah, it does make sense, you know, that how, how long has there been uh, urbanisation on the east coast of Australia? Now, quite some time. So there's a plenty of generational time for them to kind of have some selective uh, pressure and then have a bit of adaptive change towards those kind of environmental conditions, right? Yep. Um, and also a lot of studies that have been done with pythons have actually shown when they have access to human dwellings, they'll spend up to two thirds of their time. So that might be an information centre in a national park or other places like that, that they do have a tendency of hanging around in urban or human areas. Well, where there's, uh, there's people, there's rats. So yeah, it's always the way to go. The only thing you got to be careful with regards to urbanisation is that if you're searching in an urban environment, it's a lot easier to see more ground more easily. So you do get a selection bias when you're searching in urban environments as opposed to in the bushland where they're designed to uh, be camouflaged. Yeah, that does make sense. You know, um, a python cruising around on the street underneath streetlights with some short grass is going to be a little bit easier to spot than something in kind of the uh, long, uh, long undergrowth, right? It is, but then it also comes into the characteristics of what makes urban adapted animals, and that's where their density is actually higher and their home ranges are smaller. So in urban areas, you might be expected to come across them more frequently only because they're going to potentially fit into that urbanised category. Interesting, and something that we might not know until we get a better count of those 
population densities and movement patterns, right? Definitely. Fantastic. Well, so we've got a little bit more searching to do around these houses. Um, and uh, then, unfortunately, um, I'm going home. I'm tired. I need, I need, I need my own bed. But uh, these guys are going to keep on trucking and uh, they'll get up at 4 a.m. 4 a.m. You guys are starting your morning search, right? It is 4 a.m. The uh, kettle will be put on prior to that. <laughs> Won't it, Michael? Yes. Thank you. Yep. <laughs> already, already getting volunteers in. I like it. I like it. Um, but uh, so some of the uh, intrepid python hunters will be here all the way through tomorrow. Um, we're going to pack it in fairly soon because we're lazy. But uh, thanks so much for inviting us. We'll definitely be out for the next one. Um, it's been a whole lot of fun. Scott, any, uh, any parting words? Any final shots? You did well, Yanni. <laughs> oh, thanks, mate. I do appreciate it. All right. Cheers, guys. Um, we will be back shortly with uh, plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails. Check us out on uh, on all the platforms out there on Apple Podcasts, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Podbean, Anchor, all of those things. And you can also find us on Twitter and Facebook and all the other social medias. Um, all right. Plenty more wildlife cake and cocktails coming at you shortly. Thanks, guys. Talk soon. Bye.